Well, good morning. Well, that was that was a good good morning. I didn't even have to have you redo it. So, uh, you guys are uh, I must be awake this morning. Um, one more thing before we get going this morning is that. Um, We have our newcomers lunch today at Aaron and Hannah's house. Um, If you are new here, there's still room. Um, And I think that they they make this really killer like pork taco thing. So if you're new here, you should come to the newcomers lunch at Aaron and Hannah's. Hannah's right here. Aaron led worship. Uh, Talk to them and they can give you you directions to their house. Um, It'll be shortly right after the service. Um, So come to that if you're new. if you haven't met me, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And and this morning, we are returning to our study of the book of 1 Samuel. And so if you're opening your Bibles, you can open it to 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's kind of, that's where we'll kick off with our reading this morning. But over the summer, we took a break from 1 Samuel, and we studied the book of 2 Timothy, and we finished that up last week. And so for the sake of all of the new people that joined us this summer, and for the sake of all of the rest of us who tend to forget these things, um, this morning's message is going to be like one of those, like previously in 1 Samuel, and uh, messages where we, we're going to cover the first 20 chapters. Um, of the book of 1 Samuel. So we're today, it's, I think it's on the slide too. It's 1 Samuel, I'm not joking, 1 through 20. Um, you know, and as I, as I talk about that, I just want to be clear about something. You know, usually, like, there's, there's different ways for people to explore the Bible. You know, you can take, you know, normally what we do as a church is we'll go, we'll pick a book of the Bible and we'll take a pretty leisurely stroll through it and we'll look at all of the details on the path that, that God has for us in the book. But sometimes, like, you get a different view of the Bible if you get in an airplane or a different view of anything. If you get in an airplane, fly over it, and you can see kind of like the big landmarks kind of in their relationship to each other. You, know, you miss some of the details, but you get a different perspective on the same piece of land, if, if you know what I'm talking about. And that's what today's going to be like. Hopefully, it's not just going to be a bunch of disjointed, uh, like, you know, 30-second clips from, like they, like they do on Netflix. Uh, but they'll be able to see kind of like the story so far in its totality. Um, and so we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at um, those first 20 chapters. You know, uh, the book of First Samuel is an, is an important book because it, it, deal, it details the time for us when the monarchy was, stab- was established in ancient Israel. It happened, it's a real life story. It's a real historic facts. This isn't just a, a mini-series. This isn't just a fairy tale. This is what happened in the nation of Israel at about 1,000 B.C., and it chronicles for us the rise of one house, like of, of one dynasty in the nation of Israel, the house of Saul, and it, it records for us its rise, its fall, and the rise of the one that would replace him um, as king. You know, and as a real story, and even imaginary stories of this kind, um, it's, a, it's a story that's filled with treachery and deception and power and greed and all sorts of like stuff um political stuff you know watch the news you'll know what i'm talking about um you know but ultimately it's not a story about like and the story's going to unfold around main characters but it's not a story about the characters it's not a story about political maneuvering it's a story ultimately about god himself it's a story about God's redemption through, through his chosen king. And so as this story of God's redemption, it's our story. It's the story of how God has worked to bring the Messiah, the son of David, onto the throne, um, who will one day like, bring us into his kingdom. Um, it's, this, it's, it's our story. And it's going to break out. This morning, the, our text, the first 20 chapters, are going to break out around three, three main characters. 
Um, and first one, Samuel, uh, he's, he's going to illustrate to us how God overturns corrupted religion. I've entitled this, that, the, that we worship the Lord who overturns a world turned upside down. Um, God overturns a world turned upside down. And I, I, I purposely didn't use the word like sets right, a world turned upside down, because sometimes God's overturning of things doesn't feel particularly good. But God overturns a world turned upside down. Um, he overturns corrupted religion. We'll see that in Samuel. He overturns a world of political idolatry. We see that in Saul. And then God gives strength to his king. And we'll see that in David. You know, we will we'll look at all those characters. But before we do, um, we need to take a second because the story actually doesn't start with them. The story actually starts at the beginning of 1 Samuel in the hill country of Ephraim. And if you don't know where the hill country of Ephraim is, that's okay, because that's the point. It's nowhere, right? It's, it's nowhere with a nobody family, and it starts with a woman by the name of Hannah who, who was downtrodden and depressed because she lived in this dysfunctional um, uh, polygamist marriage where, uh, as, and as you can expect, when you kind of discard God's design for marriage and do something like that, like there's going to be problems. And her co-wife... Uh, like relentlessly like mocked her because Hannah wasn't able to have any children. And, and um, not being able to have any children in that day and age was a big deal. And it was, it was accompanied with all sorts of shame because like the family's survival depended on being able to have children. The nation's survival depended on being, have, being able to have children. In fact, God's promises to Israel depended on people having children. And so Hannah not being able to have children like would have been like under this, in this place of shame in her culture and her co-wife, what was her name, Penina? Penina like always reminded her of that. And so her life just got like filled with sorrow after sorrow after sorrow, year after year after year. And she finally goes into the temple and she, and she pours out her heart to the Lord. And, and when she does, the priest Eli actually accuses her of being drunk. She's so, like, distraught in her emotion. She comes to, like, the temple to worship the Lord, and she gets accused of being drunk. You know, but the, but the Lord knew her. The Lord knew her heart. The Lord, the Lord responded to her prayer, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son, and that son's name was Samuel, who will kick off the, the story of God's redemption, beginning with her. You know, and I kind of imagine, like, Hannah, Hannah plays a really unique role, not just in, the, in the, creative, like, the fact that she gave birth to Samuel, who was a main character, but she plays a unique role in this book, because in chapter 2, where, where hopefully you guys are there right now, in chapter 2, she, she sings this song, or it's, it's, it's recorded for us as poetry, and it says that it was a prayer. She prays, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. She has this prayer in her, her life. The fact that she was this downtrodden lowly woman who was lifted up by giving a, child, a child and her child would be this one who would start this redemptive process anew in the nation of Israel. Her life and the, and the words of her song actually give us, the, give us the outline of the book. It gives us the key themes that are going to be coming out in this book, namely that God is a God who overturns what's turned upside down and God's a God who establishes his king. So, so I, I imagine it this way. I imagine like if, this, if the book of First Samuel was a play. You know, the, you all come in, you have the background music playing, the, the lights in the auditorium dim. But before the curtain opens, this drama of Hannah's life plays out in front of us all. And then as, as she has her child Samuel, she holds her child Samuel, she comes to the center of the stage like 
everything goes dark. All the other characters fade into the background. You guys with me on this? The spotlight focuses on her, and she prays this prayer, sings this song that that foreshadows the things that God is going to do in this book and foreshadows like God's salvation for us. So let's read that together. Please stand as we read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We pray with me. Father, I just praise you for preserving this um, prayer of this beautiful woman who knew you and loved you and clung to your promises. Uh, I pray that we would be men and women like Hannah um, who know you, who seek to understand your character. Um, as we open the scriptures today that, and as we learn more about you, that we would cling to those things, um, that they would inform everything about our lives, that we would be able to walk in your story of redemption, just as Hannah was able to. So I pray for each of our hearts um, that uh, you would move in us powerfully as you've promised to uh, for Steve as he teaches the word for us, um, that you would just give him uh, wisdom to um, bring these things to people. Amen. All right. Well, as we, as we, as you heard Hannah read Hannah's song. Um, uh, I, there's a couple things I want to just bring out before before we get into like the, the the main points. You know, first of all, look at that psalm. You know, he she she proclaims like my heart exalts in the Lord. Like she breaks out in praise because of God's like grace to her in her in her like song. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies i.e. co-wife, um, because I rejoice in your salvation. Like, Hannah is recognizing that the salvation of the Lord upon her is being manifested in um, God's just great grace being poured out to her and what he's beginning to accomplish in her. And she goes on, she goes on and says this, uh, um, starting at verse 4, we see this idea of God overturning what's turned upside down. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Like that's that's Hannah's life, right? Like she was the feeble, the sorrowful, the forlorn, the downtrodden, and like God strengthened her. 
God breaks the bows of mighty, like there's no military power that can resist him. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. The barren gives birth to seven. She who has many children languishes. The Lord is the one who kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol or the grave and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. You know, what Hannah wants us to know at the very beginning of this story, before the curtain opens, is that amidst all of the upside-down world that, that she finds herself in, amidst all of the chaos that surrounds us today, with power and corruption and treachery and, right? That, that God is a God who's in charge of all things. He's the one who exalts. He's the one that brings low. He's the one that makes rich. He's the one that makes poor. He kills. He brings to life. Like God is the main actor in the story amidst everything that's going on. She wants us to know that from the very beginning. And then, and then she, she points forward. Let's start at, look at verse 9. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. There is no strength that can rise up against the Lord. In fact, Hannah, uh, back in chapter 1, we didn't have a chance to look at it this morning. She, as she prays in the temple, she prays to the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is this term that means the Lord of the armies of heaven. She's the first person in the entire Bible to, to have the, the words the Lord of hosts on her lips. Like, from the very beginning, she knows that God is the God who's in charge of all things. God is the God who controls the armies of heaven. No one can stand against him. And she points us forward even more in verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed Those last two phrases, him giving strength to his king and him exalting the horn of his anointed, there was no king in Israel at this point in time. She's pointing us forward to this monarchy, but she's pointing us beyond like Saul and David and everybody else because she refers to like, she refers to his anointed. The word anointed is where we get our word Messiah. She's, She's the first person in the Bible also to refer to Jesus, the coming promised one, as the Messiah. God is bringing us a king and a savior and a messiah. And this is that story. She wants us to know that from the beginning. He's in charge. He's rescuing his people. And he's going to give strength to his king. And he's going to exalt the horn. Speaking about strength of his anointed one, the coming messiah. That's the story. The curtain opens. And then we enter immediately into the drama. Starting in chapter 2, verse 12. God overturns corrupted religion. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Look what it says. Now the sons of Eli, Eli was, the, was a priest. He was the one that was working in the temple that accused Hannah of being drunk. Were worthless men. And they did not know the Lord. And then we find out in verse 13, and the custom of the priest with the, and the, custom of the, priest with the people, when, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he goes on to describe this practice where they would go in, they would take the meat, the meat that was supposed to be sacrificed to the Lord, they would take it for themselves and go home and have a barbecue. 
And like the, so Eli, the priest, his sons, like it was like this pervasive thing that there was this complete corruption in the, in the temple worship where the priests were just indulging themselves and violating the law of God um, in, in the sacrifices that were to be offered. In fact, you see it really bad, like at the end in verse, uh, verse uh, 16. It says, and if the man said to him, by the way, let me just pause here. You're going to need your Bibles because we're going to be cruising. So I'm just going to tell you to flip to places and look places. So, so keep your Bibles open. Verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. And if a man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, which is what the law would say. Then he, the priest, would say, no, but you will give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Like this, this was the religious climate into which Hannah, like, lived. It was the religious climate that, into which she gave her son, because she had dedicated her son to the Lord. So she gave her son to serve in the temple amidst all these dirtbags, right? Like, that's life. You know, in fact, it, get, it, it continued to get worse, because look down at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, so some years had passed. And he had heard all that his sons were doing in, in, to all Israel and how they lay with the woman who ser- women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So not only did they indulge themselves physically on the food that was supposed to be offered up to the Lord, but they indulged themselves sexually like in this thing going on in the temple. And it says that they, these are the people that were serving in the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was like the, was the tabernacle where God was there meeting with his people. So in the very place where they were supposed to, where they were supposed to be worshiping the Lord, they were indulging themselves. Where they were supposed to be honoring the Lord, they were just committing fornication. That was life in the temple. In in uh, in Hannah's day, it was corrupted religion at every level. You know, amazingly though, like God doesn't just abandon His people. Um. And, and he raised up Samuel to overturn things. In fact, look at verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Right in the middle of all of this going on, you have this statement about Samuel, which is really important. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen, linen ephod. I don't know what all your translations read, but that's, that's a good translation there. When Eli's sons were just completing com, completing. Uh, doing bad things. <laughs> Somehow I got tangled up in my words. There's this young boy who's living in the temple, and it says that he's ministering to the Lord. There's this contrast, right, between the sons of Eli and the son of Hannah, Samuel, who's just a little kid. And it says that he's wearing a linen ephod. That's not just a fashion statement. He's wearing the clothing that the priests were supposed to wear. It's really important. So the writer of Hebrew, I mean, of 1 Samuel is telling us that Samuel, this little boy who was dedicated to the temple and was serving in the temple by Hannah, um, is actually functioning like a priest. And when everybody is indulging themselves, he's the only one actually serving the Lord as a little kid. The reason why that's remarkable is that Samuel wasn't even qualified to be a priest. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. He's not qualified to be a priest, and yet God, in his unexpected way, just like Hannah, is raising up the lowly to overturn this corrupted religion and set things 
right again. You know, you can see, flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, and as you're going there, you know what we find out in the pages in between as, as Samuel serves, that Samuel, Samuel obeys the Lord. He, he obeys his word. He serves God faithfully. God speaks to Samuel. He's the first person since Moses that was called a prophet in the story of the Bible. So he's the second prophet. Moses and Samuel it would be the, the next person. And, and God, like Moses before him, was using Samuel to, to deliver his people from all the corruption around them. And in 1 Samuel 7, verse 13... Let me get there. You see this, this summary statement. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So Samuel returned the people to the worship of the Lord. He, he returned to the teaching of the law. And here it says that the Philistines were Israel's greatest enemies, that the hand of the Lord was against them all the days of Samuel. That Samuel brought in like this peace that, uh, and this security that nobody before had been able to bring in. Like life was good in the nation of Israel as Samuel was serving there. But the story doesn't stay there. Look over at chapter 8 now. Chapter 8 is beginning at verse 1. And it came about that when Samuel was old, that he had appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, now listen, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You have the sons of Eli, who were completely corrupted, and now you have the sons of Samuel, who are completely corrupted. They're supposed to be judging in righteousness and helping rule God's people, and they're taking bribes, they're perverting justice, and they're, they're completely corrupt. Like, what gives? Right? Are, are you like, that's weird. And I think we need to understand something here about Samuel and about what God is doing in the nation of Israel, is that both in Samuel's successes and in, in the sin of his sons, like, God's pointing us to something greater and more significant. You know, because the reality is this, is that Samuel, as, as great as things were under Samuel, Samuel was just a man. Samuel had his weaknesses. Samuel wasn't going to live forever. Samuel was going to die. In fact, that's what they say down in verse, um, verse 5. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Hint, hint, right? And your sons do not walk in your ways. So we're going to, I'll save that for the rest, for the second point. But Samuel wasn't going to last, and his sons were already corrupted. And so this peace that they had under Samuel was short-lived. I think what God wants us to understand here is that there is no human, like, leader. There's no human religion. There's no earthly, like, um, pastor or priest or influencer or author that is ever going to bring you, like, bring you into the kingdom of God and give you what Jesus can give you. In fact, in he, the writer of Hebrews talks about this. In Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 23, he says this. He says, the former priest, of which Samuel would have been one, on the one hand, and ex existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now listen to the contrast. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Goes on. Therefore, he is able to save forever 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just, we'll just stop there. I've got more of that text. It's a great text if you want to read it. But what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is unlike any other priest that came before him. Actually, we'll go read the rest of it. Okay, next slide. I'll go. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Why is Jesus different? He is holy. He is innocent. He is undefiled. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. And he doesn't need daily, like those other priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. I think there's one more thing, yeah. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. You know, the failures of Samuel, the failures of his son, the successes of Samuel, they're all meant to point point us to, to someone greater. They're all meant to point us to the one who lives forever, the one who doesn't need sacrifices for his sins, the one who offered one sacrifice for all time to bring us to the Father and to bring us to make possible all of those blessings that the nation of Israel longed for, that Samuel had brought them to foretaste of, but then that they got disillusioned with when his sons were corrupted himself. So I think one point of application for us, just a challenge to us, is that just know that there is no one who can give you what only Jesus can give you. And it's 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 worshiping him it's relying upon him and the sacrifice of offering up himself that brings us into like that place of god's blessing and restores us as god's people god makes what's turned upside down he upsets what's turned upside down by his son who was like ridiculed and downtrodden and downcast whom he exalted up it was his son who died and who was raised again God overturns what's turned upside down in the person of Jesus. You know what happens, and I started reading it in verse 5 then. In verse 5, the, the nation of Israel says, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us, a king for us to judge us like all the nations. So here, the nation of Israel, they finally get disillusioned again with this process of human leaders not delivering what they hope that they will be able to deliver. And so they're like, okay, we're done with that. We just want a king like everybody else. You know, and this is our second point this morning, is that God overturns, like, uh, political idolatry. Because what was at the core of their, like, desire to, uh, to have a king wasn't, um, was, was that they were actually rejecting the Lord himself. In fact, that's what goes on. Listen, listen to what it says down in verse, verses 7 and 8. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So their disillusionment with their kind of like religious system that kind of forced them to turn to like earthly power and earthly systems and earthly government wasn't just like, like a switching of a plan. It was a rejection of God. And he goes on. He says, like verse 8, like the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. What he's saying is like their, their rejection of me and their desire for a king is just like when they like turned from worship to me and worshiped idols. This is a, a political idolatry. 
They're, they're looking to a king to bring them what only God can bring. They're rejecting the one who showed grace and, and protection and care to them for all of these years, who lifted up the lowly like Hannah. They rejected him for, this, for, for human systems and human identity. In fact, they speak about that identity in, in verse, um, where is it? Verses 19 and 20. You see a little bit more about their heart. It says, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Now listen, so that we also may be like the nations. That our king, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They were looking for a king so that, they, so that their identity could be like the nations. Like God had promised to them that, that they are the people of his own possession. That, they, that he called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't want like, our unique identity as God's people. Where, where he brings his love and his care and his commitment and his covenant upon us. We want to be like everybody else. And have a king. And, and we're going to trust that king to fight our battles. We're going to trust that king to, to deliver us the safety and security and hope that we want. You know, it's interesting because the, the, the word nevertheless there in verse 19 is referring back to what just happened. And it's, it's what God had said. He said he, he told Samuel to warn the people of, of uh, what this king would do. And if you, we don't have time for it this morning, but if you were to read through those verses, I'll, I'll start reading at verse 11 and I'll just read a little bit. You'll get the sense of it. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. They will run before his chariots. Skip over to verse 13. He will take your daughters as perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14. He will take the best of your fields. Right? Over and over and over again, six times, I think, in those few verses, he says, this king is going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. He's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your crops, he's going to take your money, he's going to take your servants. He's going to take everything. And in fact, the taxation of this king is going to be so bad, it's going to be 10%. <laughs> right? Things just keep getting worse. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? The people of Israel gave up the God who gives to them, who loves them, who cares for them, who exalts them out of their lowliness for a king who would just take and take and take and take and take. And then it, and God said this at the end, verse 18, then you will cry out to me in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. God's going to say, like, sometimes the worst thing that God could do for us is give us what we think we want. And he's like, yeah, it is not going to be what you think you want. This king will never give you what you want. You know, what we find out is that, is that Saul actually had a pretty good start, but it wasn't long before he, before he, um, well, yeah, it, was long, it wasn't long before he started having some problems himself. But even at his coronation, kind of when he was a formally established as king and the transition of power went from Samuel to, to him in chapter 12. Flip over to chapter 12, verses 19. Verse 19. You know, Samuel actually preaches this message to him at the beginning of chapter 12. And then God kind of amens his message by sending this thunderstorm in. Um, thunder and lightning, where just like Hannah said, he would thunder from the heaven. 
And Samuel had basically told them that you've disobeyed the Lord and rejected the Lord by appointing this king. God amends it with this thunderstorm. And then they say this in verse 19. Then the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. The people do not fear. You have committed this, all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. And you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has, pleased, has been pleased to make you a people for himself." It's this huge words of comfort in, in comfort in the middle of like the nation of Israel's sin, in the middle of their rejection of the Lord, in the middle of their conviction. Samuel says, don't turn aside. Keep pursuing the Lord because anything else you go after is simply going to be futile. It will never deliver what you hope it will deliver. And then he says, and uh, the Lord will not abandon his people. And what a great message for us today. Like we could be in this world that feels completely turned upside down. We could feel like downtrodden and, and um, weak and, and uh, mis, mis, misunderstood, whatever, whatever it is. The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. And so God doesn't just leave them with this corrupted king. In fact, what we find out is that in chapter 13, flip over to chapter 13, verse 13, Saul had, uh, was, was called to like, defend the nation of Israel. The Spirit of God had come upon Saul because he was the king of Israel. Um, but then Saul had like, overstepped his bounds, had gotten impatient with, the, with Samuel and with the Lord, and he had, he had acted like a priest when he wasn't supposed to. And what you see in chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 13, Samuel says to Saul, he says, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord God commanded you. So what happened with Saul is Saul disobeyed the Lord. And in fact, as the story of 1 Samuel goes on, Saul like, just spirals deeper and deeper and deeper into his disobedience to the Lord. And what God says to Saul here through Samuel is that, you know, Saul, because you've not kept my word, I've, I've sought a person better than you. Is that what he says here? Um, uh, later on, he says he's better than you. But here it says, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. You know, there's, there's a couple nuances to that, his own heart expression. Usually we think about it as it's a reflection of the person's heart towards God. But I don't think that's, the, that's like the, the central meaning of it. What he's saying is like, you chose a king that was in accordance with your heart and your desires. But now I'm going to choose a king that's in accordance with my heart and my desires. Like this king that he's going to choose, who we don't get even introduced to until three more chapters in chapter 16, is, is a king that's going to be consistent with what God wants for his people. And Saul's going to be rejected, that, that God is going to overturn this corrupted political system they have and establish a king that's a king that he wants. You know, before we go on to that last point where God does give strength to this king that he's chosen, 
Let me just speak to like some application around the, around politics for a second. You know, we're not we're not in this situation today like the nation of Israel was, where we can choose to like have like a, a like human government over us or not, right? Like uh, the New Testament is super clear that God appoints government over His people wherever they are in the world for their good, for their protection, for the punishment of the evildoer, for the praise of those who do right. Like, human government is God's agent in this world, and as God's agent in this world, it's an important part of our life, right? We don't, and we don't choose whether or not we want government or not, but what we do choose is how much hope we place in our government. And the reality is this, is that there, just like religion, there is no king just like there was no priest or pastor or church that's going to deliver what God wants to wants you to ultimately have, so there will be no like president or political party or political system that will deliver you what everything that God wants you to to have. Like there's one King over God's people, and and. We just need to burn this into our heads because I think oftentimes we can be just like the nation of Israel. We get disillusioned with things not going our way. Like maybe, like, oh, maybe my relationship with, like, Christ and religion doesn't seem to give me what I want, so I'm just going to swing over here and trust in politics to give me what I want. Maybe, maybe our, like, values are just completely misaligned. You know, our, if, if I wrote about this, I don't know, a few months back in a blog post, but if our... If our like responses to the political things that are going on around us are are driving us into this place where we're not walking the spirit of God, where we're just filled with anger and wrath and malice and slander and all of those things that are just kind of like the American way today, then I think that would be a symptom that maybe we've placed our hope in the wrong place. Like there is no army that can stand against the Lord. Hannah told us this. He's the Lord of the armies of heaven. He exalts. He brings low. We can trust him to overturn what's turned upside down. Like we can, and as we do that, like if if we're in this place of like trust and rest and peace in him, like it'll allow us to respond to, um, in our political climate in, in appropriate ways as well. But don't hope in human government for what only God can give you. Because human government takes, doesn't give. That's what the message to the nation of Israel was. You know, but the, the great thing is, is that God doesn't just leave them there either. He, he rescued them from their corrupted religion, and he's going to rescue them from their, from their uh, corrupted politics. So turn over with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. So what happens during this time is that Saul continues to act, and Saul continues to make mistakes, and continues to kind of get more and more disobedient, and and, and then God, like, Samuel is, like, super depressed, and God finally rebukes Samuel and says, like, Samuel, like, stop being depressed, and it's time to get on with, with the next thing. I'm going to send you to Jesse's house, and, and I'm going to, because I'm going to choose a king from one of the sons of Jesse. Jesse's got a bunch of kids. So Samuel sneaks his way over there, because you don't want to, like, pick a new king when the tyrant king is still alive. Like, <laughs> bad mojo. Um, so he sneaks over to, Beth, to Bethlehem, ironically, not ironically, prophetically, goes into Jesse's house, and then Jesse's sons start to bring, start to bring, like Jesse starts to bring his sons before Samuel. And this is what happens in chapter 16, verse 6. 
Then it, then it came about when they entered, they looked at Eliab, that's the oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What God's saying to Samuel there is like, Samuel, don't make the same mistake again. Right? Like Saul was a good looking guy. Saul was tall. Saul looked valiant. Saul was, had all the pedigree. This guy, Eliab, he apparently was tall. He apparently was good looking. He, he was the firstborn, the way it's supposed to be. But God doesn't deliver his people in the expected ways. He always works in unexpected ways. And he says, no, in fact, I rejected that one. Don't make the same mistake. And he brings another son and another son and another son and another son. And finally, they go through all the sons. And there's like, and God's like, nope, nope, nope. And so Samuel's like, what, what's the deal? Like, is there any more kids? Oh, yeah, there's like the one that we don't really care about. He's stuck with the sheep working in nursery. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I offended homeschoolers last week, and this week it's nursery workers. So... I'm an equal opportunity offender. Just want you to know that. <laughs> but that's the reality, right? It's, the, it's those who like, take that low place of service that God exalts. God's values are completely upside down. Don't think that somehow like serving in nursery is any less valuable service for the kingdom of God than whatever else you would exalt higher. And that's where they find David. He's faithfully taking care of the sheep. Um, I'll read verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending his sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him here, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So here you have the lowliest again, the unexpected one who is, is elevated by God over his brothers. And it says that the spirit of God came upon him mightily. Like David's elevation wasn't because of David's strength. It was because of the strength of the spirit of God upon him. Like God is the one who raises up. And God is the one who makes low. Look at the. Now the spirit of the Lord, verse 14, departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul, who still reigned as king, is now being tormented by this like, like tormenting spirit. Spirit of God leaves him and the spirit of God comes upon David. And David is strengthened by God himself to this role that he's going to be that he's going to have. The story continues. Like you guys might be familiar with the story of David and Goliath. That happens next. Um, and and no, no matter what Saul did throughout the next few chapters, no matter what Saul did, he tried to undermine David's popularity after the whole thing with Goliath. Like David kind of soared into public like limelight. And Saul tried to undermine his popularity. And the more he tried to undermine his popularity, the more popular David got. He finally got tired of that, and so he had this scheme he cooked up to, to, send, like, to send David into battle so that David could be killed in battle so that he wouldn't have to compete with David. And that backfired, and it ended up resulting in him marrying his daughter. 
So now David like, gets elevated to the point of being like the king's son-in-law. In fact, uh, after the David and Goliath thing, David and Jonathan, who was Saul's oldest son, who was the heir to Saul's throne, became best friends. So Saul's just like pulling his hair out. The Lord lifts up. He's best friends with David's son. He's married to, to, I mean, to Saul's son. He's married to Saul's daughter. And so finally Saul's like, I'm just going to send assassins and kill him. So he sends assassins to kill him. And Saul's daughter somehow catches wind of it. And uh, she actually delivers him from the plot immediately. And then as we kind of approach like, the, the end of where we were in chapter 20, um, David, David goes and talks to Jonathan. And Jonathan's like, no, my dad would never send assassins after you. He's like, well, go, go try it out and, and find out. And, and Jonathan figured out that, that, oh, yes, indeed, Saul did send assassins after him. And what we have as we end in chapter 20 is, is, this, is this story where, where David and Jonathan, who were best friends, like have one of their last meetings together. And, and it's this heartbreaking thing where, where, Jonathan is, uh, where Jonathan is going to have to tell David, yeah, like my dad is trying to kill you. You need to run. You need to be a fugitive from now on. And, and it's likely, from their perspective at least here, I think they see each other one other time. But they, it's likely from their perspective right now that, that uh, it's the last time they're going to see each other. And let's just pick up at verses 41 and 42, which is where we ended um, before we started Second Timothy this year. It says, when the lad that was Jonathan's servant was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together. But David more. They had this like genuine like friendship and of like this deep love for each other and knowing what's about to happen. Like David's weeping as they, as they part. And then in verse 42, and Jonathan said to David, go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. You know, that's where we ended. Um, this spring. But as Jonathan says that, as he makes this covenant with David, he, he tips his hand into telling us that this is bigger than just his friendship with David and with, with him and Jonathan, him and David. It's bigger than just their friendship because he says this, and he uses the word, my translation says descendant. The real word is actually seed at the end of verse 42. The Lord will be between me and you, between my seed and your seed forever. There is this, Jonathan understands by the Spirit of God somehow that there, God is doing something in the descendants of David that's going to last forever. And, and he's pointing us forward to this reality that, and, and if you know anything about where the story goes, uh, God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where and he uses that same word seed, where one of your seed will one day sit upon the throne and he will judge, he will rule over all the nations. And, and, and he will be born in Bethlehem from another downtrodden woman that doesn't seem to have any significance from an insignificant town. And if it sounds familiar, it's Jesus. You know, and, and the cool thing about First and Second Samuel, this is a little Bible geek stuff, is that First and Second Samuel actually in the Hebrew Bible is one book. And it has like this structure that pervades throughout. And, and at the in chapter 2, at the beginning of the story of, of, of this rise of David, this king that God is going to establish and strengthen. Um, 
Hannah has this long section of poetry. At the end of 2 Samuel, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 24, I think, 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23, flip over there. The, the, this whole narrative kind of ends, the story of David. It's not the very end of the book, just like Hannah's wasn't the very beginning of the book, but the story kind of reaches its, its ending with another long section of poetry. It's uh, like all of chapter 22 and the first half of chapter 23 are, is, this, is this long poetry that ends the book. It kind of frames the whole book. Hannah's song at the beginning point is forward. And then what we see here in chapter 23, verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. You have David's last song. that He was a psalmist. He wrote songs. And this is his last song that he wrote. And, and right before it, though, before we look at David's song in conclusion here, look at verses 50 and 51 from chapter 22. He says, therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and to his seed forever. So what David's doing at the end of, of chapter 22 is he's saying, like, God is a God who strengthens me, but, but I'm not the end of the story. In fact, God's the God who strengthens his descendant, his seed forever. He's the one that strengthens the real king. He's the, David's speaking prophetically here, pointing us forward to Jesus. He's saying what, what's true about me is just a small picture about what God's going to do in Jesus. And then he has this song, his last song that he wrote, chapter 23, verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, and the man who was raised on high declares. Do you see that? God is the God who raised him up. God's the one who raised him up the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his words are on my tongue. So he's telling us something about himself and he's telling us something at the same time about Jesus. He was the one that was raised on high. Now what does Philippians 2 says? Because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God raised him up higher above every name and every power. The Jesus we worship is the one who was raised up on high. Brian, you can come forward and get ready as we as I finish this up. I'm not Brian, Aaron, sorry. <laughs> Saw you there. We could do a switch real quick. <laughs> Be ready in season and out of season, you know. <laughs> Verse two The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. David and Jesus to come after him is the one who Jesus said himself, the spirit of God is upon me to proclaim good news to the, to the captives and release, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. I think it's in Luke chapter four. Like Jesus is the one through whom God ultimately speaks. You see it over in verses, in verse uh, three. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Same words right out of Hannah's song. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. What he's saying is like God's telling him what kind of king we should long for. He rules righteously and he rules in the fear of God. You know who Jesus is? He's he's the righteous king who ultimately like fears and obeys God, respects him. He goes on. The, The king who does that is like the light of the morning when the sun arises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after the rain. 
this beautiful picture of, of like, like springtime in, in, in Judea when the, the rains would come through and water the ground and the sun would come up on this beautiful clear day. The grass would be growing and flourishing. And the, the air is clear. It's like God is this gardener who's, who's growing something beautiful. And, and under the reign of Jesus, it's like Eden is going to be restored. It goes on. Truly is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my, di- my desire. It's interesting what he says. My house, my dynasty is that way with God. And he says, because God has made a covenant with me. He's referring to the covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where, where God says he's going to appoint his, like a son of David over the throne, who's going to bring in all of the promises. Like, it's that one who's, and who's going to come, and it's secured. It's ordered in all things and secured because God has said it. He goes on. Will he not, this is the end of verse 5, indeed make it grow? Like, God's this gardener, and he's working through all of the, like, drama of politics and corrupted religion and overturning what's turned upside down. Like flourishing and life and peace and his kingdom for his people. And it is secured because God has said it. And he's promised to appoint one of his descendants, one of David's descendants upon the throne. So just my challenge to us, you know, as we leave here, is let's not fall prey to like lesser gods. Let's not put our hopes in, in religion or pastors or influencers or politicians it's in the descendant of David that God is going to grow like life for his people. In fact, I just want to end with what Samuel told the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 22 and in verse 24, 1 Samuel 12, 22 and 24, he says this. Let's worship him because the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. And then he says this, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Like, God has done unbelievable things for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So, what what does Samuel say here? Fear the Lord, serve in truth with all your heart, and consider what great things he's done. At the end of the book of Revelation, not at the end of the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 5. Um, John is, has this vision in heaven and he, and there's this scene where he's like mourning because there's, there was no one found worthy to open the scroll, like to break the seals and open the scroll. And, and the scroll is kind of this metaphor of, of overturning what's turned upside down, that no one is found worthy to like come and make this world right again. And, and then, and then the, one of the people standing by him says like, no, the line of the tribe of Judah has done it. And then and then John records this worship in heaven. He says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped let's pray father i just thank you that the descendant of david is going to come and make all things right that he's worthy because he laid his life down for us i thank you that you've made us to be a kingdom and priests that you've brought us into your family you've given us your spirit you've sent us into this world to represent you and but i just ask as we we leave here today that we would worship you and serve you in truth with all of our heart because of as we remember the great things you've done for us. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, thank you for coming this morning. Um, Please go rescue the nursery workers uh, that are serving you so faithfully. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week.